This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Episode 8, Living on Lockdown, Survive and Thrive. Today's installment is the fifth and final podcast of our series, Living on Lockdown. The four earlier podcasts were practical tips on how to weather the lockdown experience, ranging from your personal finances to exercise, nutrition, shopping, entertainment, and socializing as you navigate the uncharted waters of living through the isolation phase of the COVID pandemic. Next week, we will be back to our regular series of podcasts touching on every aspect of life in San Francisco and the Bay Area. But how are you surviving this great lockdown of 2020? Has it been a mixed bag of positive and negative experiences? Did you learn anything positive out of the lockdown? Have you acquired any new skills that you can transfer into life after this hiatus? Of course, the lockdown is not over. And in fact, here in San Francisco, we enter our fourth week of staying at home with another four weeks ahead of us the entire month of April. So sheltering in place here in the Bay Area seems to be flattening the curve of the COVID virus and the COVID pandemic, with fewer cases of the virus being reported. So let's keep doing what seems to work, stay at home, keep our distance socially, stay leave home only for urgent and rare chores or appointments. And yes, we're buying time. That's all that we're doing. We're staying away from people who are ill, which is also important, but what we're doing is buying time. We're waiting for a new vaccine, or we're waiting for repurposed medicines, or ramped up ventilator production, or perhaps better uh, personal, physical, and mental health, which might come as a result of new medicines and new biotech approaches. But the survival phase is still very much on. The lockdown phase will continue for at least another four weeks. And from time to time, I will touch on the survival phase in future podcasts. But for now, we're finishing up this series and moving on because like life, life does go on. And we all have to get on with the rest of our lives, even though we may be confined to our homes to do so. One of, the, one of the, the challenges of this home confinement and one of the big challenges in the whole COVID-19 process is where do we get our news from? How reliable is our news? What is fact? What is fiction? What is opinion? To the extent that we all have a little extra time on our hands to read the news or to follow the news, I think it's incumbent on all of us to take a very hard look 
at where we get our news and what the source of our news is to make sure that we're getting fact-based information and that we're not regurgitating rumor, innuendo, opinion, etc. Let me share with you the five sources that I'm using as part of my staying on top of the COVID-19 crisis. There are five of them, and I'll go over them with you in descending order. Number one, every morning I watch in the, uh, I tune in to the daily COVID briefings, including Drs. Fauci and Dr. Bricks. I find their no-nonsense, tell-it-like-it-is, old-school doctor approach to be very refreshing. They tell the truth. They tell the unvarnished truth the way a doctor would. Uh, Dr. Fauci, of course, is very familiar to us here in the Bay Area. He used to work at UCSF, and he was a trailblazer in the treatment of HIV at UCSF during the 1980s. So we're very familiar with Dr. Fauci before he took up his current assignment at the Center for Disease Control. Uh, Dr. Bricks is also a very impressive epidemiologist and someone who's, um, whose delivery is dispassionate to the point and very factual. So they are my two briefers, if you will, every morning when I need information on COVID-19. My second source of news are, is the BBC World Service and NPR. The BBC World Service is really second to none, both in its coverage of COVID-19, as well as other topics and other news events. Specifically in the case of COVID-19, one thing I like about the BBC approach, they are looking at America's approach to this pandemic, the lockdown. They are looking at it from an objective foreigner's perspective. So they're one step removed from the rest of us in that they are British journalists. They are uh, a little more dispassionate in their analysis of how we as a society, as Americans, are coping with the lockdown. So I especially enjoy that perspective from the BBC. NPR, of course, with their, uh, their nightly news report at six o'clock is also a, a great luxury because they have that one hour interview format where they can take deep dives on issues. So uh, they are in second place both the BBC World Service and NPR are my go-to sources. My third source, and this stems from the fact that I was, a, I was a stringer in Latin America for a number of years, my third source of information are the old news wire services like Reuters, AP, and Agence France Presse. One of the great things about a news wire service is that there's no editorials, there are no opinions which come across those wires. It's cold, hard story facts. Often the stories are little more than a sentence or two, but it's incumbent on the journalist who write for Reuters and AP 
to distill the story down to its essence, to get down to the basic facts of the story. And so I like to look at Reuters and AP and what they have to say about COVID-19, because again, they're giving me the unvarnished facts. The fourth source of information that I find helpful in this is business reporting. Um, Bloomberg.com, The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times. Now you may say, gee, doesn't business reporting come at this issue or any issue with its own agenda? Well, first of all, you have to remember that those three sources of business reporting are all, they move markets. Their information influences business decisions and the markets are looking for facts on which to either go up or go down. The business community is looking for factual information on which to make investment decisions. So that's why I look to Bloomberg.com, The Wall Street Journal, and The Financial Times for their reporting on COVID-19. I'm not looking at their opinion pages. I'm not interested in their editorials on this subject, but I do find that their factual reporting on COVID-19 is to the point. The fifth source of information that I'm looking to on a daily basis is local TV news coverage. To the extent that COVID-19 is not only a global and a national and a statewide story, it's also a local neighborhood story. We have had many instances in this COVID-19 crisis of clusters of COVID infection popping up in nursing homes and neighborhoods. And local TV news coverage has done a terrific job in focusing its resources on those local stories and keeping me as a local neighbor informed about what's going on with this virus in my neighborhood and in my community. We have five local TV TV stations in the Bay Area, and all of them have done yeoman work and a terrific job in covering COVID-19 from a local perspective. Now, you will note that I have not mentioned the three cable news networks. I have not mentioned any newspapers, nor have I mentioned talk radio. I avoid those three sources of news for anything to do with COVID coverage. All three of them, cable news networks, talk radio, and newspaper editorials are all opinions. They're all editorials. I want facts. I don't want to look at the facts of COVID-19 through the prism of somebody else's opinion, political bias, philosophy, what have you. So I steer away from those three sources of information when it comes to my COVID-19 information. Wanted to share that with you and uh, whether that's of any use to you, that's entirely up to you, but um, the morning brief with the doctors, the BBC World Service and the wire services are some of my best sources of COVID-19 information. 
Now, coming back to one of my podcasts from last week, we did a comparative study of other countries' approaches to the COVID-19 crisis, and we focused on the, a number of European countries. I specifically focused on Holland in one of the stories, and the reason I reported on the uh, Holland's approach to the COVID crisis was they have a, uh, a unique approach. They are using a de- an epidemiological approach, which is called herd immunity. And the concept of herd immunity is an epidemiological concept, which is based on the idea of letting a virus course through the herd of animals so that the herd as a whole is going to acquire a group immunity to a new virus. Now, Holland has taken this epidemiological concept, which is very uh, common in animal husbandry. They have taken this concept and they're applying it to the 17 million people in their country. Uh, Needless to say, when a politician comes on the television and starts talking about herd immunity, the, uh, first of all, it's wrong. Uh, the implication as a citizen of that country, if I were in their shoes, or their clogs being Dutch, um, if I were in their shoes, I, w- I would be appalled that a politician was referring to fellow citizens in the same context as he might refer to a herd of animals. However, that is their approach, the herd immunity approach they have a very limited and targeted and what they call an intelligent lockdown approach. So they haven't shut down their whole economy as we have. They have very selectively and a very targeted basis closed down schools, nurseries, universities. They have also closed down bars, restaurants, gyms, but they have left open most of their stores, cafes, excuse me, they have closed cafes, they have left open delicatessens, supermarkets, of course, and their factories. Of course, people are taking precautions when they are in those places. They wear gloves, they wear masks, they socially distance. So it is a targeted and a limited lockdown as opposed to a lockdown of the entire country. Now, of the 17 million people in Holland, At this point, the death toll stands at 1,650, with about 6,600 in the hospital. Whether their approach proves to be the winning approach and to be the, uh, the model that we all should look to, we don't know. It's too early to tell. But over the next few weeks, look out for news coming from Holland because if they have to abandon this targeted lockdown approach and go to a full lockdown, as we have done here in the United States, as they have done in France and in England, then it means that uh, we are, we're probably in for a longer lockdown than a shorter lockdown. So Holland is a kind of a canary in the coal mine in the sense that They are the test case for the light lockdown as opposed to our very heavy and uh, deep 
lockdown. Some additional news coming out of Wuhan, which of course was the epicenter of the outbreak. Uh, is, Wuhan is beginning to come back online and it's a city of 11 million people. Now at the height of the crisis, at the end of January, beginning of February, five million people from Wuhan fled the city and dispersed themselves all over the rest of China. Those who remained in Wuhan were essentially put on a very strict lockdown, some of whom were actually locked in their apartments, locked from the outside by the authorities in their apartments. Some people died as a result. And it was a very strict militaristic mass quarantine of the entire city and those who were left in the city. However, as a result of the downgrading of the virus in Wuhan, uh, people are now coming back. The city is open for business. Trains and planes are beginning to run again. And Wuhan is trying to retain, return to a semblance of normal life. The malls are open, the shops are open, but of course, uh, customers have not flocked back in great numbers. But again, Wuhan is a case to be watched closely. We are all fearful, of course, that Wuhan has a relapse. We certainly hope that they don't, but we're looking at the t statistics coming out of Wuhan in fear that there could be a relapse. Chinese statistics are not to be trusted, neither by the Chinese nor for those of us who live abroad. So when you hear statistics coming out of China, approach them with a grain of salt and Again, try to approach those statistics uh, as factually and ob as objectively as you can, but recognizing that the Chinese authorities have manipulated statistics in the past. And one of the reasons that we are in the global pandemic that we are in is because of the poor management of the original outbreak of the COVID-19 virus in China, in Wuhan. So what will the lasting effects of the pandemic and especially the lockdown, what will the lasting effects of this lockdown be socially, economically, globally? Will China be shunned as a tourist destination? Will our global supply chains suffer as a result? And what about Italy and Spain what about their tourist industries? What about the fact that they continue to approach the apex, but they haven't yet flattened the curve of their COVID-19 cases? So again, as we sit in lockdown, as we get our information, let's keep an eye closely on these other models in China, in Italy and Spain, because what happens in those countries may determine how long our lockdown is going to last. Now, there is a historic perspective to be gleaned here. Henry Kissinger, who was formerly the Secretary of State under President Nixon and President Ford, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal last Friday. And in that piece, 
with regard to COVID-19. He said that the COVID-19 pandemic is a watershed event in history. I repeat, a watershed event in global history. His point is that global politics, the global economy will never be the same after this pandemic as it was before. I commend that editorial to your attention. They are wise words that he has spoken, and I fear that what he has, what he has to say is true. But I want to end on an upbeat, a positive note, because we are still in the midst of our lockdown, and we do need, we eventually will emerge from this lockdown, and we do want to thrive once we do emerge from it. And in the spirit of thriving, I have to recall the words of the 93-year-old Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of the Queen of England, the Queen of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Today, in a rare address to the nation, it's only her sixth ad address to the nation during her 68-year reign. She stressed to the British people and to the Commonwealth the following message, and I will try to quote her here. I hope that in the years to come, everyone will be able to take pride in how they responded to this challenge. That the British attributes of good-humored resolve and fellow feeling still characterize this country. They were the words of uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the head of the Commonwealth. And she brings a great historic perspective given the fact she's 93 years old. She lived through World War II and her father was a World War II wartime leader. She brings that perspective of a country and a commonwealth and an empire which was uh, threatened by uh, an existential threat, as it were, uh, during the World War II, and came through it, got to the other side successfully and victoriously. So on that note, this is Jim Herlihy signing off for the San Francisco experience from America's favorite city, San Francisco.